Good evening. Thanks for coming back. Great to see you all here. Just give you a quick update. Pastor Vivona is uh, no longer conscious. He is uh, not stirring. He does not appear to be aware of his surroundings, etc. So just pray for the family in these last moments. I'm doing a series entitled, What Does Righteousness Look Like?, simply because I couldn't come up with a better title. I uh, am trying to uh, be as practical as possible. I have one more message of kind of introduction, and then I'll be able to get into some specifics. But why is it important to understand what righteousness looks like? Answer, if one is going to engage culture, one must be able to distinguish differences in culture that are biblically acceptable from those that are not biblically acceptable? Secondly, what aspects of Christian culture are biblically mandated and what aspects of Christian culture are mere preferences and traditions? It takes a great wisdom to be able to look at a culture and make a determination between what is simply different and what is acceptable or unacceptable by biblical standards. Um, We have so much Christian tradition that we are so comfortable with, we begin to think that if you're a Christian, everybody has to look that way, dress that way, act that way, when in fact uh, it's a matter of culture as opposed to biblical, biblical mandate. And making those distinctions are not as easy as it may sound. Pietism, if you remember, a quick review, sought to separate or isolate from culture, to live separate from, okay? And it kind of flows out of that old monasticism and the world is an evil place and shut yourself up and, and don't associate with it. Puritism, on the other hand, sought to battle culture. We think of all the hymns that we have, Onward Christian Soldiers, that was taking the culture on. It was to, to conquer evil and sin and be able to overcome it. And overcoming was a, a big thought for the Puritans. The missional approach seeks to engage culture or interact with culture or perhaps the best word, identify with culture. So the theme is the missional model seeks to engage, identify with, and participate in culture as far as possible in order to love one's neighbor and to bring the message of salvation. Uh, In trying to provide a background here, I wrestle with huge generalities and how much specific to get into. But let me just begin by saying I'm not talking about a fad and I'm not just talking about uh, a, a particular method of approaching the Christian life. But I, I'm talking about a deep-seated, rooted theological perspective. Okay, um, Oftentimes referred to as incarnational theology. It is modeled after the person and work of Jesus Christ. The emphasis being that God sent his son into this world to save us in the fullest sense of that word, in the salvific sense of that we might be able to enter uh, heaven, but 
Jesus Christ came, and as a result, he's going to undo all of the evils that this world has experienced. Uh, As my favorite Christmas song, Joy to the World, he will remove uh, thorns, thistles, etc., as far as the curse is found. So when you think about the curse of sin, Jesus Christ is going to remove every single aspect of that curse. And the missional point comes in that word sent. He was sent into the world. And as such, he identified with us fully. Jesus Christ came and participated in our world. Now, Jesus Christ went so far as to actually become a man. He was a man. And he limited himself. Though he was God, he chose to live like us. And if you think about the temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness, the uh, evil one tempted him and said, if you are the son of God. That if is a third class condition in Greek, which means it's expecting a positive answer. In other words, since you are the son of God, uh, Since you are the Son of God, turn this stone into food. You're the Son of God. Why are you hungry? You've been fasting. Scripture says he was hungry. Well, then turn this stone into food. Okay? What was Jesus' response? Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, key word in that phrase is man. Man does not turn stone into bread. Therefore, I am not turning stone into bread because I was sent to live as a man. I came to be a human being. I came to die in the place. I am fully identifying with. And so for Christ, it would have actually been a sin to turn the stone into bread because he was sent to live as a man, not to live as the son of God. And so, though he had the powers and the ability, he could feed the 5,000, but he never chose to feed himself in that manner. Remember the, the whole story of the woman at the well, and we focus on the aspect of, you know, you've had four husbands in the man you now have is not your husband, and how he's reaching out to her and stuff. But do you remember why he is there in the first place? Alone? Because he sent his disciples to go and buy food. He was choosing to live as a man. And so the emphasis is in incarnational theology, when the scripture says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, that means that we are to adopt the same kind of mindset that Jesus had in Philippians chapter 2, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery, a thing to be held on to, to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He became a servant. He became a man. And then as a man, he humbled himself. Okay? And let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So it has a theological basis to it. I'm not going to develop that anymore. I'm just laying that as a foundation. To talk about a progression. So background. The historical shift in quote, 
doing, unquote, missions. In the 1800s to early 1900s, missions had a tendency to separate from culture rather to engage in or identify with culture. For example, missionaries often lived on compounds behind fences as opposed to in villages alongside of those to whom they were ministering. One of the ways that you can see how old a mission endeavor is and a mission field is go and visit it and just see how it's constructed, okay? Old ones were compounds. They've been there a long, long time. Now things are different. Number two, missionaries would live like they did back home as much as they could. On compounds, housing looked more like houses back home than native culture. They would eat what was ever served them when they were out in the village. However, when they were back on the compound, they would eat a mere, more Western diet when possible. Missionaries brought Western hymns as opposed to adopting tribal songs and instruments. And so uh, rather than compose music using their tunes, they would have a tendency to teach the natives to sing Amazing Grace and things like that. They brought Western dress to the culture. James Hudson Taylor uh, was a British Protestant Christian missionary to China and founder of the China Inland Mission, now OMF International. Taylor spent 51 years in China. The society that began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country who began... Began 125 schools, directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces. Taylor was known for his sensitivity to Chinese culture and zeal for evangelism. He adopted wearing native Chinese clothing, even though this was rare among missionaries of that time. And I take that quote from Wikipedia. Okay, so that was, that was rare. People didn't do that. People didn't dress like those that they were ministering to. In fact, they taught the people to dress like them. And so you'll, you'll see pictures, you know, of, of Africans where, you know, they were attending church and they're wearing white shirts and ties. That was totally apart from their culture. But they were taught that if you're going to be a good Christian, that's what good Christians do. They wear white shirts and ties when they go to church. And that was a part of culture that had nothing to do with the scriptures, but was brought over into that particular uh, venue. Missions is taking on an entire new look. Missionaries more and more are now living with the tribal people. They are living at the same standard of living as the people to whom they are ministering. They are following a similar lifestyle of foods, shelter, and dress. And number four, they are seeking to raise the standard of living for those to whom they are ministering. Now here is a real change of mind. It's not simply about trying to relate to the people. It's not simply to try to make a bridge so that they wouldn't be resented because they're living in a house with electricity and the person in the tribe doesn't have any electricity. It's more than that. It became a moral issue. It became a, a, a matter of, it was viewed as sinful to be living at such a standard when everyone else could not live by that standard. And so rather than just be concerned with yourself and raising your own standard of living and providing electricity for yourself but not for others, now the idea was 
You should raise the standard of everyone's living. Everyone should have electricity. Everyone should be getting these opportunities. Um, so, five, medical treatment, water purification, provision of electricity, advanced farming techniques and skills trainings are all now a regular part of missionary endeavors. Not simply as a way of reaching people, but also because of a moral responsibility that, you know, you should be helping these people. You shouldn't just be concerned about flying the missionary's kid to a good hospital. You ought to be concerned that the person that you're living next to doesn't have that same opportunity. They can't get there. The missionary plane isn't going to arrive and pick them up. You need to be concerned about that child. You need to be concerned about their health. And it became a, a moral issue. A moral issue. So good deeds are being performed not merely as a means of sharing the gospel, but also as a fulfillment of the command to love one's neighbor. In addition, number seven, there is a constant lookout for points of contact where shared values and points of interest intersect between the Christian culture and the general culture and to utilize those points of contact fully. So in other words, it, it, there is also this desire for an inroad and an opportunity to share the gospel as well. Number two, and this is where we're going to be focusing on, what was true in foreign missions is now being practiced more and more on the home front. Let me just back up and say again that this is not just a matter of pragmatism, but it's it's a matter of responsibility. It's a recognition that Jesus Christ sent us into the world in order to save the world in that fullest sense of giving them the opportunity to worship with him forever and also to overcome the evils and the sins and miseries of this world. So every single person has that responsibility. So understanding sent is simply to a fallen world, not necessarily to a locale, not necessarily overseas, but sent means that every single Christian has the responsibility of being concerned for this sinful fallen world world. And it should be number one in our agenda. Okay, So every one of us, no matter what it is we are doing, no matter where it is that we work, no matter what our occupation is, no matter where we get our paycheck, that we have a responsibility with that paycheck. We have a responsibility on that job to be concerned about those around us. We have a responsibility of reaching the lost and, yes, around the world as well. So, A, there's a growing recognition that the United States is a missions field, in that old sense of the word. There is a recognition that we live in a post-Christian America. You will read that everywhere. Um, Meaning that it is really a misnomer to call us a Christian nation. That's our history. But today... Things are quite different. There are one-third fewer churches in the United States today than there were in 1950. One-third less churches in America today than there were in 1950. Now, we think a lot about planting churches, but there are more churches being closed in a year than are being planted. 
Okay. <clears throat> While 40% of Americans tell pollsters that they attend church regularly. So you may read that picture, you may read that figure. Uh, it comes from uh, Gallup polls, etc. 40% of Americans tell pollsters that they attend church regularly. By head count, 20% of Americans actually do attend church regularly. In other words, when you, they've done studies and, you know, they, they, people have taken the attendance figures from all the major denominations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, put them all together, and when you actually sit down and count the number of people that show up, it's 20%. And so the uh, people that are involved in Christian demographics refer to the 40% as a halo number. A halo number meaning that people want to look better than they really are. So when they ask them on the phone, do you go to church regularly, they say yes, but in actuality, many of them don't. Okay, when you actually sit down and count them, only 20% of Americans presently attend church. It is incredibly misleading. To think that because we now have these mega churches that we are really, really changing society. We're not. We're not. The mega churches are... Um, Causing us, uh, we are misled if, if that is our understanding. Let me jump down now that I jumped that far ahead. Uh, let me look at B, and hopefully I'll come back to this. B, the emphasis is moving from an attractional approach to doing evangelism to an engaging approach to doing evangelism. The church growth movement sought to attract people to church, okay? So that. <clears throat> Rather than, if you were going to witness to somebody, the tendency was to invite them to church. Okay, you want to impact somebody, tell them to come to church. And come to church and hear the gospel. Come to church and have the opportunity to be saved. Come to church and be instructed. Okay, so the attractional model was, do something that is going to make people want to come to church. Okay? You want to attract them. You, you want to do something. So you might have a celebrity. You might have a sports star that would be there. And so people would come to be able to listen to the sports star, listen to that celebrity, or hear a concert by a, a famous uh, Christian vocalist. Or, you know, one of my favorites is uh, have a Super Bowl party. You know, Super Bowl Sunday night have a Super Bowl party and uh, rent huge big screens and so everybody can see the Super Bowl on a big screen and then, you know, you serve free hot dogs and all that kind of stuff and, you know, maybe, you know, provide lounge chairs and all this other stuff. And here's an opportunity to come and, and watch the game and at halftime have a gospel presentation. Now think about that. How many non-Christians want to go to a church to watch the Super Bowl? They'd much rather be at a friend's house where they're having beer and not, and not uh, lemonade and that they are having a real party all the time, not sitting through a halftime, which is half the show, 
to be sitting and listening to a sermon. The attractional model didn't reach the unsaved. The attractional model simply moved Christians from smaller churches into bigger churches by providing them programs and opportunities that their church didn't have that they would like. And so the megachurches are not growing by conversion. And I'm not just picking on megachurches. The American church is not growing by conversion. There are less Christians today. The reason churches are growing is because there are less churches. Less churches. It's just a pecking order of larger churches taking from smaller churches and larger taking from the mid-sized churches and just moving on up. So it's very, very misleading to think that we are having an impact on our society because of all these mega churches. No, that's not, that's not the case. Number two on page four. The church planting movement is emphasizing taking the church to people. In the church growth movement, there was a desire to bring people back to church. Now the emphasis is upon reaching the unchurched. That is really, really different. And it reflects where we are in a post-Christian era. Okay? Um, Let me say one thing more, and then I'll go back there. C, bus ministry sought to bring children to church to hear the gospel. Uh, I don't know. Did did this church ever have a bus ministry? No. Okay? You were one of the few Bible fellowship churches that didn't. Okay? I can remember bus ministries were really big. Uh, in the uh, BFC. I was involved with two churches, both of which had bus ministries, the running church, the Blandon church. And uh, the idea, well, you, you know, you got a bus and you went out and you picked kids up in the community and you brought them to church and you ministered to them. And by the way, by the way, children's church is a product of bus ministries. Children's churches did not originate as a means of teaching children at an uh, appropriate lesson for their age. The, the junior or children's church started because churches were bussing in all these children and they had too many children to control during a morning worship service so they took them off by themselves and had their own little service. That's the history of children's Churches, but nonetheless, okay. But now, today, well, jumping one step too far, okay. So that the people that were older, my generation, okay, just about everybody went to church. Just about everybody went to church. And that meant culture was really different. There weren't games on Sunday. There weren't sports on Sunday. There weren't all these things on Sunday. Because everybody went to church. It's hard for us to imagine, but everybody went to church. Then, the adults quit going to church, but they still had a desire that their children would be instructed in the things of God. Thus the bus ministries. 
And parents were willing to send their kids, but they didn't want to go themselves. But the reason the bus ministries died is because parents no longer valued sending their children to church. They didn't think it was important that their church, that their children would be instructed in the things of God. And even more than that, after a while, they began to be afraid of sending their children to church. What is that place they're sending to? Who's watching over them? What kind of things are taking place there? And there was a suspicion. And so there has been a huge, huge change. And one of the big changes that is taking place is that the next generation isn't going to have any church experience whatsoever. It will be, for, it will be absolutely foreign to them. There will be just tons of children that are growing up that don't even know what it is to go into a church. They won't know the Bible stories. They won't know whatever. Okay, we're really rapidly reaping the consequences of this post-Christian era. Let's go back to the top of page four. I want to pick that up. Uh, let, let me go, uh, sorry, let's go back to bottom page three. While 40% of Americans tell pollsters they attend church regularly by headcount, 20% of Americans actually do attend church regularly. Now I'm at small a under number one at the bottom. Small a. There are many different ethnic cultures. You know, so that you've heard, and it is true, that there are so many people flocking to America, and you can find people that are speaking Swahili. When uh, Matt and Suki were ministering in Coopersburg, they actually had a few people start coming to the church that spoke Swahili because Matt could speak Swahili in Allentown. And they found that there was a small nucleus of, of people that were actually speaking Swahili. They are all around us. And we're going to be emphasizing that more in days to come. There's a growing awareness of generational cultural differences. So that there really is a different culture today with the younger generation than the older generation. Part of it is technology, but it's much, much more than that. Now back to page five at the top. Now the emphasis is upon each person being a faithful witness where you are. The missional emphasis is that every single believer is to be reaching others with the gospel of Christ. Gospel, understanding that in the fullest sense of that word, this aspect of good deeds, of the, of the message of salvation, all these things. C, there is a readiness to affirm what is good in a culture rather than to always condemn culture. There is a heightened awareness to look for points of contact and agreement with culture. Number two, America's cultural concern for the environment is compatible with the scriptures. I'm talking about now ways in which the church can be sensitive to and identify with culture. Environment issues. That's big. Well, that should be big for Christians too. 
cultural mandate. We are to take care of this universe. We are to take care of this world. The, uh, Adam was told that he was to uh, care for the garden. Okay? He worked it. Okay? We shouldn't just be abusing our, our planet. In the old days, Christians were very quick and glib about talking about tree huggers and about people that were concerned about the environment. And they would poohoo it, okay? And I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard make fun of global warming. Think about it. How many Christians have you heard make fun of global warming? Let me ask you another question. How many non-Christians have you heard make fun of global warming? Why is that? Why is that? And my point tonight is not to get us off into a huge discussion of global warming. All I'm saying is we ought to be concerned about our environment. That is not something that we should be fighting against. There is a point of contact that we can be in agreement. As Christians, we should be concerned for our planet. We should be concerned for the generations that come after us. We should be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Next, America's cultural concern for the homeless and poor is compatible with the scriptures. There's a a big concern in our society over homelessness. That's something that we should readily identify with. Four, America's cultural concern for the oppression of people and social and ethnic inequalities is compatible with the scriptures, mandate for social justice. Number five, where at one time it was viewed to be religiously liberal to have such concerns, now it is understood that the evangelical church is to be concerned about such issues. That not only is it okay to be concerned about such things, but we need to be concerned about such things if we're going to be righteous people. And next week is when I'm going to start looking at specific biblical passages to be able to frame all this out. But I'm just throwing out some ideas for you, get some background. Number D, there is a renewed awareness that social justice is not only compatible with the Scriptures, it is commanded in the Scriptures. Thus, to be righteous, one must be concerned that B should be for social justice. What does righteousness look like? It means you are concerned for social justice. However, in order to be righteous, we must also be concerned with a moral shift in post-Christian culture. Okay? This morning's message was very old school. This morning's message, if you were 50 years old or over, you sat and said, yeah, that's, that's good. Preach it, brother. Yeah. Tell them about that. Okay? If you're 20, you heard that message a whole lot differently than somebody that was 50. Tonight's message, if you're 60, you're listening to this message and saying, oh, I'm not so sure about all this. And why is he bringing up global warming? What does that got to do with the Bible? All this other stuff. And you're sitting there and saying, and the, and the 20-year-olds are saying, well, finally he's with it. Finally he gets the idea. Finally, the point is that I'm trying to make is it's not an either or. It's a both and. 
And my biggest concern of why I'm doing this is I'm really concerned that these two generational ideas are butting heads. And people are fighting, the Christian community is fighting over the moral issues and the social justice issues. And I'm saying to you, if we're going to be truly righteous, we're concerned about both. We're concerned about personal morality, and we're also concerned about the poor and the needy and social justice and equality and all these other things. And I will show you both of them from the scriptures. And that's where we are headed with this. But number three, Paul defends his ministry of seeking to identify with culture. Hey, Paul does not find it praiseworthy that he is preaching the gospel, for he is obligated to do so. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul says, don't pat me on the back for preaching the gospel, because, man, I got to. I'm going to be held accountable if I don't. What is praiseworthy is the manner in which Paul preaches the gospel. For I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Not to be a burden to others, but seek to relieve that burden. See, Paul took on the attitude of a servant by placing himself under the cultural norms of those whom he was seeking to save. This is a very powerful portion of scripture that is just so easy to read over and just let it roll off your feathers like, a, like rain off a duck. But he says in verse 19, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This word win, win is, it's interesting, he didn't just simply say in order to save them, but to win them. To, the idea is to, to win them over, to get them on his side, to get them to embrace what he embraced. It certainly includes the gospel, but Paul was seeking for them to identify with him, so therefore he had to identify with them. So D, Paul then provides us with some generalities as to how he placed himself under various cultural norms. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So when he was around Jewish people, he acted, he lived, he conducted himself like a Jewish person. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. So when he was, when he was around people that followed rabbinic law, he followed rabbinic law. That he might win those under the law. To those who are outside the law, he lived outside the law. Didn't live by rabbinic law, didn't live like a Jew. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He says, I never quit being a, being a Christian. Okay, I didn't go that far, but I didn't live like a Jew. I didn't live like a Pharisee. I lived as much as possible like the people round about me, that I might win them. Um, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. That probably is speaking about people that have weak consciences, things that they, they felt they couldn't do, like eat meat offered idols. When he was around those people, he didn't eat meat offered idols. 
when he wasn't around those people, and people were eating meat offered to idols, he ate meat offered to idols. He conducted himself consistent with the people that he was seeking to win. And then he says this in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. When you think of the issues that, that Paul had to face, dietary issues, was it contrary to the scriptures to eat meat offered to idols? He spends a lot of time on that. And there are places where he says, don't eat meat offered to idols. There are other places where he says, eat meat offered to idols. It depends on who you're with. It depends, it depends on what they understand. It depends on what is the, the norm of the, of the culture. Was it contrary to the scriptures to eat at the same table as the Gentiles? And you can remember that in the book of Galatians, Paul takes Peter on. He says, I withstood him to his face because he refused to eat with the Gentiles. And he says that even Barnabas was carried away with that hypocrisy. Okay? And he says, you know better. Remember, Peter has the dream. And God gave him a revelation and said, don't call unclean the things that I call clean. Eat. But Peter gave in to social norms. He gave in to the pressure of those that came from Jerusalem and said, you shouldn't live that way. Issues of worship. Head coverings for women. That's a fascinating passage. And I don't know if you know that passage very well, but it ends with this simple statement. That if anyone is argumentative, we have no such custom. He defends wearing a head covering as a matter of showing respect and authority. and some, But he says, if you're going to fight over it, don't do it. Because it misses the whole mark. It loses the, the purpose. So if you're going to fight about that, just don't do it. It's very interesting. Issues of circumcision. All of these things. Application. Number one. Paul was highly criticized by the Jewish leaders for the lifestyle that he led in seeking to win those who are not Jews. He got nailed by the Corinthian church and by so many others because he was living a lifestyle that they viewed as unacceptable. They viewed as unrighteous. They viewed as unrighteous. Okay? Now I'm going to go back on, a, on another limb, okay? And dangerous. But you know, there, there's nothing in the Bible that says it's sinful to have blue hair. Okay? There, there just isn't. Okay? If, 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 if you want to dye your hair blue, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, so don't go home and say, Pastor Reed said it's okay. Okay? Don't get me in trouble. But but it's not sinful. It's not sinful to dye your hair blue. You know, and for some youth pastor that's working in the inner city and half of his kids show up with blue hair, you know it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if he dyed his hair blue. But there'd be a whole bunch of people that would jump all over him for doing it. We need to be careful. We need to stop back. We need, we need to step back. And, and we really need to think about it. Now I'm going to go, you know, light years different because of our, our society, our culture, okay? So I'm going to way back, okay? So don't have any fears that, you know, I'm going to have blue hair next week. I'm, it's not me, okay? Because our culture is also big on authenticity, genuineness. Genuineness, authenticity. 
okay? Look around, okay? If you're wearing a coat and tie, would you stand, please? Okay, one, two, three, four. Three of us on the pastoral staff, and, okay? 20 years ago, I'd had more people standing. 60 years ago, I had a whole lot more people standing. 80 80 years ago, I wouldn't have anybody standing because then you didn't wear ties. They were sinful at that point. Now, now why do I say that? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is that in our culture, in our society, young people view a coat and tie as a means of of inflating yourself, okay? And when it it comes to the clergy, it's often viewed as being professional. Professional, okay? You're wearing that because you're a pastor, and there's a lot of truth to that, okay? Hence, three of us wearing coats and ties, okay? But that's viewed as being very unauthentic, being very ungenuine. You're a professional, where you ought to be just like everybody else. So, you know, you probably may have noticed, may not have noticed. But more and more, when I'm not in the pulpit, I don't wear a coat and tie. I came to a birthday party yesterday. Did anybody notice I didn't have a coat and tie on? Would you raise your hand? You know, that's really interesting. Because that was the younger people that recognized I didn't have a coat and tie on. The older people didn't. That's really interesting. That made an impression on young people. Wow, the pastor doesn't have a coat and tie on. The other generation didn't think twice, okay, because you're used to seeing me, right? So, what all I'm saying is in our generation, that was the right thing to do. In this next generation, it's not the right thing to do. Biblically, it just doesn't matter whether you have a coat and tie on or not. It's the wisdom of seeking to identify with a people group in order to win them over, in order to identify with them, in order to participate in their lives. Number two, we must be very careful not to criticize the lifestyle of those who are seeking to win people who are not Christians. Three, we must give Christians in America the same freedoms that we have given to our missionaries overseas. What I've described to you is just very common overseas. There's just that recognition. And the church just lets missionaries get away with murder overseas. You know, they're very unjudgmental about the things they do, where they go, the things they participate in, because they understand that they're trying to reach people. But you bring that same attitude back to America, and you're going to get nailed. And I'm just saying, we need to think more here about the way we think there. We need to think more about being concerned about our culture and reaching people than what we are. So number four, we must also adopt similar sacrifices of our culture to win others as they have sacrificed their cultural comforts to win others. So sometimes we have to step out of our our comfort zone in order to be able to meet others' needs and concerns. That all sounds very pragmatic. Next week, 
I'm going to start looking at the scriptures in detail and talking about what it is that we must be most concerned about with righteousness. And with that, I'm going to begin to talk about what is the elephant in the room in evangelicalism today, and that is homosexuality, and look at what the scripture really says about that, and it might surprise us in some ways and not surprise us in other ways. But uh, I want to be practical. What does righteousness look like? Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to be people who are really concerned about the lost, who really are concerned about the people around us, who really are concerned about true righteousness and not just preferences, not just our cultural comforts, but, Lord, uh, of just the opportunity to minister to, to others. Uh, give us a, a real wisdom to recognize uh, what righteousness really does look like. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.